Merry Christmas, Wawasee. Glad to be with you today. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here. And welcome to all of you who are watching online. Glad to have you with us today too. Hey, uh, again, just to reiterate what Myra said, hope you join us tonight for Blue Christmas uh, here or online on Facebook, six o'clock. Christmas Eve, same thing, Thursday night at 6 p.m., And then again, next Sunday, just that one service with no kids ministry. So we're looking forward to just kind of everything happening around here at Christmas this year. Uh, I have a question for you. Have you heard of Corona? Not the virus, the beer. You weren't expecting that today, were you? Uh, Are you familiar with it though? It's a beer, it's made in Mexico. And uh, I, I think one of their taglines even over the years was, uh, was Corona Mexican for beer or something along those lines. And they've had a number of them over the years. You know, Miles from Ordinary was one of them. And a few years ago, they, th- this company recognized that they were selling a lot of beer in the summer because they were kind of associated with the beach and, and all that sort of stuff and with summer and a tropical paradise. But they weren't, their, their sales in the winter just plummeted. And so they hired a marketing firm out of Chicago, actually, to help them with this. And they just came to him and said, hey, we realize we, we don't know how to sell beer in the winter to those of you up north, so you gotta help us with that. And we also realize like our, our brand is just so associated with tropical paradise and the beach that we probably have to pull away from that. So let us know what we need to do. Well, the marketing firm came back to him and they said, actually, you don't need to pull away from that at all. In fact, you need to probably uh, lean into it a little more. What, what you need to do is you need to promote the fact that, uh, that that'll be our campaign. If, if somebody takes a drink of, of your beer, they'll be instantly transported to their own tropical beach. And hence the, the marketing campaign, Find Your Beach, was born. Do you remember seeing that anywhere? And uh, if you don't, maybe you remember the commercial. There was a guy like trudging through the snow, you know, big parka and giant hat and snow just blasting him in the face and can't really even see through his his goggles. And he goes into the establishment, sits down. As soon as he pops the top off of his Corona, everything just goes whoop and it just magically dissipates. And he finds himself on a beach drinking his beer. (laughs) Well, these guys were onto, these marketers were onto a theological truth. Did you know that? Actually, a, really a true biblical truth, the notion that beach tranquility of peace, even amongst the chaos of everyday life, is available. But it's not from a corona, <laughs> just so you know. It's, it's from Jesus. And, and they were onto something that, Uh, You know, uh, the corona might make you feel better for a little bit, but that peace is fleeting. But the peace that Jesus gives endures. In fact, the answer is this child born to us at Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father. What's the last one? Prince of Peace. That's what we're going to talk about this morning, just the the peace that Jesus offers to us. And uh, to do so, uh, we're going to look at at that passage in Isaiah chapter 6, but also um, really the context leading up to it in Isaiah chapter 8. So with that, let me pray, and then we're going to dive into God's Word together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that, Jesus, you are our peace. 
that uh, you're, the, you're the prince, dare I say the king of peace, and that, that you give it to us. Holy Spirit, we, we live in a world where everyone um, is longing for, looking for, searching for, scrambling for peace, especially this year. So would you show us from your word that Jesus, you truly are our peace? And um, would you let us experience that? Find our beach, so to speak. Lord, thanks for Jesus. Holy Spirit, teach me even as I teach. Might my, my, uh, your word uh, ring true in our hearts today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, this morning I wanna show you some of the context of Isaiah chapter nine, verses six and seven, because that's a beautiful passage. It's recited over and over all throughout the world every Christmas, as it should be. It's an incredible truth that the Prince of Peace has come, but it's even more powerful when you understand it in its full context of, of why did Isaiah write that? Like what was going on in his day and age when he sent that, when he wrote that, when he spoke those things to Israel? And what you're gonna find and what you're gonna see is that the people in Judah, where he was speaking, uh, they were in desperate need. And you and I, we are in desperate need. We're in desperate need of, of that peace. We're in desperate need of Jesus. We're in, we're in desperate need of a beach. <laughs> I thought I'd get an amen there, but I didn't. But hey, amen. Let me give you a little context, though, to this passage from Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, you know, we're, we're, Isaiah's uh, living here in the middle of the 8th century, about 730, 740 years before Jesus is born. And you'll remember from a few weeks ago, we kind of went through a history of the Old Testament. And uh, at one point after Solomon's death, the kingdom gets divided between the Northern crew and the Southern crew, right? The Northern one's a little bigger, more wicked. And that Northern tribe of Israel or kingdom of Israel uh, is about to get sacked by the Assyrians. They're just on the precipice of being taken away and taken hostage into exile. And the southern kingdom, though, which is what we're maybe a little more concerned with today of Judah, uh, really, on the one hand, it was pretty prosperous. Materially speaking, had a lot of things going on. Economically, not doing too bad. We'll see that. It had lost a king fairly recently, though, so there was some turnover in leadership. And now it has a new king. Uzziah's died, and King Ahaz has come to the throne. Ahaz comes to power uh, in his early 20s, and he reigns on his throne uh, for about 16 years. But one of the things it says about Ahaz is that he reigned in the likeness of all the other kings of Israel, not like his father David, not like David the king. So in other words, he was a wicked king. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and he was kind of a wheeler dealer. He was always making deals uh, with uh, foreign oppressors, uh, worshiping foreign gods, trying to, to gain peace, making deals with Israel and Judah's enemies rather than turning to and trusting God who could actually save him. And uh, so while this is all going on, this little nation of Judah, let me just show you a map. This is, this is the Middle East. This little strip right here is modern-day Israel, which uh, if you go from the tip of my thumb to the tip of my pinky finger is about the length of the state of Indiana, and Israel is about half as wide in terms of geography as the state of Indiana. So you could fit Israel roughly twice inside of our state. Gives you an idea of the size of the land here. 
And Judah, the kingdom of Judah is this tiny little green blob right there in the middle. And above that to the north, kind of some of this pink is, and even around the side is the kingdom of Israel that's about to get sacked by the Assyrians. Well, one of the things that, that's happening in this day and age is uh, there's a war coming about between, with, with Syria uh, up in here and Ephraim, and, and they're going to attack Judah. Um, and then there's also a more war coming because the Assyrian empire is looming large to the north. And, and they're just continuing to continuing to grow day by day. And eventually in the not too distant future, they're going to come in and just uh, totally sack Israel from the north and from the northeast and carry them into exile. So while Judah was pretty prosperous, materially speaking, there was a lot of danger for Judah as well. And in fact, Judah was full of idolatry and sin. In fact, if we would back up earlier in Isaiah, uh, maybe back to chapter two, even we would, we would read things like this. You Lord have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They're full of superstitions from the East. They practice divination like the Philistines and they embrace pagan customs. In other words, instead of being faithful uh, to, to the one true God, their God, who could actually save them, they were turning, uh, following the lead of their king, of King Ahaz, they were turning to, to Eastern religions and to false gods and to things that, that couldn't save them. It might have given them a little temporary peace, but ultimately it couldn't. Uh, they were prosperous though. Look at this, verse seven, their land is full of silver and gold. The GDP is pretty good. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's, there's no end to their chariots. But then look at verse eight. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. Now, here's what you're gonna see is that there's not a whole lot of difference between the culture that Isaiah is writing to and the culture that you and I live in. Now, you might say, I don't know, Josh, I haven't seen anybody like bowing down to an idol this week. No, how about to the things of the work of their hands? <laughs> you know, to, to, I mean, anything, any good thing can become an idol and we can try to find peace to find our beach, so to speak, in things that are created rather than in the creator. Later, we see Isaiah confront specific sin. He says, woe to you. This is chapter five. Uh, who add house to house and join field to field until there's no space left and you live alone in the land. What he's confronting here, he's describing kind of a, a self-centered uh, capitalism run amok to where there's a small group that are, are gaining all the power, all the wealth, and, and edging all everyone else out to where it's concentrated in a, in a very select few and everyone else is struggling and they have no concern for them only for gaining more wealth and more power, right? There's no space left. You live alone in the land. You know, you might think of it, you know, just the, the, the corporate giant coming and knocking out all the mom and pops or the family farm or that's the sort of thing happening here in Judah in Isaiah's day. And he goes on, verse 11, woe to you who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, to run after their beach, <laughs> who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. 
They have harps and lyres at their banquets, pipes and timbrels and wine. There's some pretty good parties, but no regard for the work of the hands of the Lord. No regard for his deeds, no respect for the work of his hands. Does that sound familiar? Maybe if he was writing to our culture, he might be like, your, your parties are bumping. Like you've got a, a good, good band, all kinds of bass. It's, it's sweet, but you have no regard for the work of the Lord's hands. None. It's really true what Solomon wrote, that nothing is new under the sun. Because these struggles, 700 plus years before Jesus was born, uh, seem to be the same struggles in our culture, culture 2,000 years after he was born. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We see that a lot in our culture. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks you know, kind of shaken, not stirred. <laughs> Woe to those people. Woe to us. Um, maybe we read through that list and we go, I'm not that bad. No, but, but there's a disease of sin in the heart of all of us that puts us in the same camp. And woe to us when we look to all those other things and not to God for our peace. There's danger for us. Danger for our culture, for sure. So with that context in mind, let's read from Isaiah chapter 11, or chapter eight, excuse me, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, Isaiah writes. And he warned me, don't walk in the way of this people. That's a good warning to us too, right? We're sent into the world to love the world, to love people no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they're up to. We're sent to love them, and we do, right? But we're to be in the world, not of it. We're not to, to do what they do, but to love them no matter who they are, what they've done or what's been done to them. Because Jesus did that for us. Don't call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. See, one of the things about this little uh, nation of Judah is uh, during the time of Ahaz, they began to see conspiracy in everything. You know, because Ahaz, he was always, uh, he's the wheeler dealer. He's making deals with different nations and foreign oppressors and what's really going on? And they couldn't explain, uh, conspiracy. It's gotta be a conspiracy. And God says, don't find conspiracy. Don't call conspiracy everything that your culture calls conspiracy. Not to say that there aren't such things, just not everything. And here's why, because uh, instead you're to fear not what they fear nor be in dread because when, when everything becomes a conspiracy against you or against your opinion or your agenda or your comfort, guess what? Where are you finding your comfort and your peace? Very horizontally right here and now. And you're not to fear the things that the others who are without hope of Jesus fear. No, in fact, look at verse 13. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. 
I wonder again, if Isaiah was writing to us, don't believe every Facebook post. Certainly don't retweet everything you see on Twitter. Don't call conspiracy everything you see. Be wise. Don't find, because when you do that, you find your hope in the here and now, not in the king of peace. Instead, set apart the Lord as holy. Now, some of you, you might have, uh, maybe you've heard this phrase like in the King James Version. Uh, this, would, would, this would say, sanctify the Lord in your heart. Sanctify the Lord in your heart. Do you know what that means? To sanctify the Lord. Sanctify means to set apart as holy. Holy means set apart. So to sanctify the Lord means I'm setting him apart in, you, in a unique place in my heart as, as holy, as unique, as the, 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 the ultimate affection of my life and of my heart. That's what it means to set apart the Lord of hosts, to, to set him, honor him as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Man, uh, if ever there was a year of our lives where we had plenty of things outside and around us to fear, 2020 is the year, isn't it? From COVID to injustice to the election, all the conspiracies. <laughs> Don't count everything conspiracy that the world calls conspiracy, but fear the Lord. Amen? Fear the Lord. Him alone you shall fear. Him alone shall be your dread. And he will become. See, when you sanctify the Lord as holy, he becomes your sanctuary. He will become a sanctuary, a holy place, a stone, a rock for you, a refuge. But if you don't set him apart as holy, he becomes a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling both to the house of Israel and a trap and snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Isaiah's kind of making a play on words here where he's saying, God is the rock. And if you set him apart as holy in your life, if you sanctify him in your heart, that rock becomes your refuge, right? I mean, he's a place for you to hide. He's a, he's a place for you to find comfort. He's a place where you have peace and, and uh, peace from within, peace from your enemies. But when you ignore him, when you don't set him apart as holy and you find your peace in everything else in the world around you, you kind of wheel and deal like King Ahaz did. Then that rock that's meant to be your refuge becomes a stumbling block for you. And uh, when, when God's a stumbling block, we, 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 we try to explain everything around him. We, we try to get around it and get around this God who's always in the way. Like, why are there these rules? Why is there evil? Why is... But when we find him as our refuge, when we sanctify him, we, we, we don't find, we, we repent. We say, woe is me. I, I come to you. I find refuge in you. I love you. And he becomes a sanctuary to you. I wonder, is the Lord a, a sanctuary to you or a stumbling block? Is he a rock you hide in or a rock you trip on? Verse 16 God tells Isaiah, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. Now, uh, what I think uh, 
there's some different opinions here, but the context kind of dictates what, what God is saying to Isaiah here is that among my people, bind them up with my word. Make sure that they know my word. Teach my word, my testimony, that it's bound up within their hearts, that it determines the way that they live that they don't find their hope in everything else around them or they don't fear and dread everything coming at them in 2020 or what might come in 2021, but that they find it in my word because my word is life. Bind up the testimony, seal that teaching among my people, among my disciples. Verse 17, Isaiah says, I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Now, when, when, when God is a stumbling block, when he's a rock you trip over, you, you refuse to acknowledge him, it's like he's hiding his face. And he does that in some ways so that you would trip and fall flat on your face and finally turn to him. But, but what a great prayer here, that, a prayer for us that I would wait on the Lord, that we would find our hope in him, Right? I mean, what a great thought for us as we close out this year and as we look to the year ahead, that we would be like that, that we would wait on the Lord and hope in him. Isaiah goes on, he says, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me, he's talking actually about his own kids here, are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Now, Isaiah's kids had some, I'm just gonna say it, they had some weird names. If you're looking for a name for one of your kids or your grandkids, how about this one? Uh, Shir Jashub. You can write that one down. Find it in the book of Isaiah. Shir Jashub. Do you know what it means though? What Isaiah is saying here is that I and my children, we've been a sign to the people. And Isaiah, of course, had been as a prophet, but even his name, which means God saves, uh, they could have looked to God for their salvation. But his kids had kind of weird names because they actually had uh, symbolic meaning. Shir Jashub meant a remnant would return because what Isaiah is teaching here is that uh, if you continue to sin, you continue to turn from the Lord, listen, he's coming and he's gonna take you into exile. He's, he's gonna ransack you. He's gonna discipline you. You're gonna be taken away, but he's still faithful. He's gonna keep his promise. A remnant's gonna return later. And his other son, maybe I should have given you his name first, his other son, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, do you think he had a nickname? I bet he did. I bet his mom didn't like yell that every time when he was out playing in the yard. But his name means speedy spoil or hasty plunder. You're going to get sacked and it's going to happen like that. It's not going to take long, but a remnant will return. And so verse 19, he says, so when they say to you, now, uh, verse 19 says, when they say to you, in, in our English language, you can mean like singular you, individual, or you like plural, right? So I kind of wish like um, a Southern guy from the South had translated the Bible because then instead of you, this would all be when they say to y'all, because that's what he's saying. He's saying this to all of us, right? Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. It's kind of a, <clears throat> when they say this, to all of you, you know, uh, look to, uh, to, to other things, to, to, to a psychic, to, uh, to some spirit. They just, they chirp and mutter. It's kind of demeaning them. When they say that, you're not going to find hope there. He's kind of demeaning it. 
Instead, shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? In, in so many Eastern religions, it was common to seek uh, some kind of interaction with the dead. Why would you seek the dead on behalf of the living? God says, seek me. Shouldn't you seek your God? And then out of nowhere in verse 20, there's kind of this, if in Hebrew, it's not even a complete sentence, uh, to the teaching and to the testimony. All of a sudden Isaiah says, what, what's he talking about? I think he, he kind of gets to the point where he's just like, you know what, we got to get to God's word. For, forget about finding hope and everything else. Forget about seeking hope and meaning in everything else. Even consulting other spirits to the teaching, to God's word, to the testimony. Friends, God wrote it all down. Everything you and I need to live the Christian life successfully, to know who God is, to have peace, to have hope. God wrote it all down. He wrote a book. And he gave it to you and to me. And so I'm, I'm happy that we're part of a church where we teach God's word. We, we hold it in high esteem. And the moment uh, I or whoever is in my spot is not teaching God's word, I hope you fire me in a heartbeat. Because we need to be about God's word. To the teaching and to the testimony. He's saying, get back to the Bible. In fact, he goes on and then he, he describes what happens when God isn't set apart as holy, when his word isn't revered, when, when, when we live life according to everything else around us and not according to God's plan. Uh, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. A common theme in the book of Isaiah is light and darkness and light being God's light uh, shed upon us. Behold, your light has come, comes up in Isaiah. And if they're not speaking according to the word, they have no dawn. They, they don't have the light of Christ shining through them. They'll pass through the land and then he describes what it's like to live this way without the light of Jesus in your life. They passed through the land greatly distressed and hungry, longing, in other words, for something. Longing for something that, that can never, and looking, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places, for, for things that can't fill them. They go through life distressed and hungry. And in fact, then they become hangry. You know, that's my son, man. When, when he needs some food, we can tell because he gets angry. He gets hangry. And, and when they're hungry, they become enraged. See? Because nothing's filling them up. Nothing's giving them peace. And they speak contemptuously. Well, when all their hope is here and not on the Lord, where are you going to look for, uh, where's your anger going to be directed? At everything around here. So they speak contemptuously against their king. It's got to be the president. We need a new president. That will solve everything. Right? Until about three days in office, you realize, oh, that didn't work. We need another president. They speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they turn their faces upward. So when all of their futile attempts don't work, they go, God, why don't you care? Where are you in this? And he's like, why don't you obey me? I've become a stumbling block to you when I've offered to be a refuge for you. 
And they'll look to the earth, but behold, in other words, instead of looking to God, they just look at everything around them, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. Distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They, they turn from God and the more they turn, the more he's a stumbling block and they refuse to make him a refuge, the darker it gets. The darker it gets, more distress, more gloom, more anguish, thick darkness. You know, the reality is this is some of you this morning. You're finding yourself just in this thick darkness. You've been finding your hope in everything but God and his word. Calling conspiracy what everyone in the world tells you to call conspiracy, putting your hope and trust here and not in Jesus. You failed to sanctify God in your heart to set him apart as holy, to look to Jesus and to Jesus alone as your hope. And maybe you're, maybe you're afraid to go to him, but we'll see in a moment, he's gentle and lowly and he loves to receive you in your pain, in your rebellion, in your sin. He doesn't look at you down in the hole of everything going on in your life and point and laugh at you. He's actually the one who can help you out of that hole and he actually climbs down into it to help you out. <laughs> That's the Prince of Peace. In ignoring him, he's become a stumbling block to you. So you try to avoid him try to find your way around him. You look up at him from your pit in anger and look down around you for hope. But the reality is you, you need to look up in hope. He's your only hope, friend. And he loves you because you are in desperate need. I'm in desperate need of peace. In desperate need of peace. And so is all of Judah. So is all the earth. So these next verses in chapter nine of Isaiah are incredibly comforting. Let's just read through these verses as a whole. Uh, verse one, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Hmm. We just wrapped up chapter eight where there is dark, like thick darkness, right? And anguish. And this is a little bit of hope, isn't it? <clears throat> the one who is in anguish, uh, there'll be no gloom for her. In the former time, it says that he brought contempt into contempt, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali on that map, that would have been the northern part of Israel. But in the latter time, he's made, the glor made glorious the way of the sea. That there was a road that ran through that part of Israel called the, the Via Mara, the way of the sea. And it went down around the Mediterranean Sea. And so he's saying that same area in the latter time, he's made glorious. Jesus picks up and quotes this also, by the way, in the New Testament and the Gospels. The land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations, that's where Jesus' ministry would be set up. Jesus is going to be the one to bring hope here. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, they've, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shown. He, he's speaking of Jesus, the one who would set up shop in ministry in Galilee. He would bring peace and it would be glorious and they're going to see a great light. Verse three, 
You've multiplied the nation. You've, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. It's a reference here to, uh, to, to Gideon in the book of Judges and how God miraculously rescued him. And, but notice the yoke of his burden. Remember, uh, they were going to be sacked by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the, the yoke would have been put on them as a heavy burden to carry and to work and do labor. In the same way, in our sin, the oppressor, the enemy, Satan puts a yoke of slavery on us and we become slaves to our sin. And, and we think that if we just do enough, then maybe uh, we can earn our way out or God will love us. But Jesus comes and he, he takes that yoke. He takes the staff, uh, that the, the, the rod that the oppressor uses to beat us and he breaks it. And in fact, he says, no, no, see, look, my yoke is easy. My burden, it's light. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. But look at verse five. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Uh, Judah was, uh, Israel is going to be sacked by the Assyrians, Judah later by the Babylonians, and just incredible bloodshed, war. But there's coming a time when all of those weapons of war, earlier in Isaiah, we read that the sword will be beat into a plow. <laughs> I mean, all of those weapons of war, just, they're going to be useless someday when the Prince of Peace shows up. And they'll just be rolled up and they'll be burned for fire to keep us warm. It's a great day. Look at verse six. These are the ones you know now. Here, th this is the context that maybe you've never heard or thought about at Christmas. The context to which this promise comes is a world <coughs> and a culture that is very much like our own very much in desperate need of peace, very much stuck in sin and captivity. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. They would have understood this right away. The son would have been an heir to the throne, a new king. There's a king coming. In fact, the government will be upon his shoulder. The weight of the whole world will rest upon him. And his name, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Who could I go to when I try to make sense of everything? Not like we read in, in chapter eight of looking to the earth and just finding anguish upon anguish, but no, we can go to the wonderful counselor who gives wisdom. He'll be called mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And check out this peace that he gives in his government in verse seven, the increase of his government it's prosperity, it's health, and, and of peace. There will be no end to it. It's not going to come in an election. It's going to come in Jesus Christ. On the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's not dependent on us. It's all dependent on God and he gives peace. And this word peace here and the Prince of Peace is the word, maybe you know it, shalom. You ever get the chance to go to Israel? Some of you maybe have been there. Some of you, maybe you'll get that opportunity one day. But if you ever do, you'll find out as soon as you get there, everybody's like, shalom. 
And every time you show up somewhere, shalom, shalom. Every time you leave somewhere, guess what else they say? Shalom, <laughs> shalom. Peace is what that means. But it's, it's not just peace in the sense of the absence of conflict. It's peace in the sense of wholeness. I mean, the absence of conflict is included in its understanding, but there's, there's so much more to it. Shalom is, is wholeness, completeness, a, a return to God's design, internal peace. To give you an idea, maybe the image of a beach might help. Of just thinking peace and calm and wholeness of who you are. See, we spend life, we'll go on vacation to a beach, but we know that that's just fleeting, right? Because as soon as something from home pops into your mind or you get a text message in your mind, you're off the beach right away and back to the chaos. And then even if that doesn't happen, you know that at the end of the week, it's over and I'm going back to reality. But Jesus offers shalom, perfect peace, wholeness, even in the midst of the chaos of life. And it's offered to you. For to us, a son is given. A child is born to you, to us. He's, he's given for you. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. You familiar with the Greek god Atlas? You ever heard of him? Atlas, uh, the myth mythology goes, was in service of Zeus and he betrayed him. So Zeus punished him by putting the weight of the world on Atlas's shoulders. And sometimes maybe you'll see a, a statue or an image of him and he's going like this and he's got a big globe up on his shoulders. Some of you have done that. Maybe you're looking for peace and you've taken the weight of the whole world on your shoulders. Well, there's good news for you because uh, the government, the weight of the world will be on Jesus' shoulder. You need to resign that to him. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he'll bring peace to the earth. He gives you peace within. He gives you peace with God, peace with your creator. He himself, in fact, Ephesians 2 verse 14 says, he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He makes peace for you and me with God. Your peace isn't found in all these other things. Your peace is in Jesus Christ. Maybe I'd take the liberty to say he himself is your beach. <laughs> He is. And he offers peace with God and peace within. Uh, listen to these words from Paul to the church in Philippi. He says, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near, so don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thankfulness, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, friends, we're in desperate need of peace, and it's the peace that King Jesus gives 
It's not the peace from all the things we see around us. It's not the ending of strife in our world or the right person being in office or any of those things or the end of COVID. It's none of those things are the source of our peace. He himself is our peace. Jesus brings shalom and wholeness to you. In fact, Jesus even says in John chapter 4, John chapter 14, excuse me, verse 27, says, I give you my peace, not like the world gives do I give to you, but I give you peace. It's unlike anything else that you can find. It's, it's, it's wholeness. And here's, here's the great thing is it's a gift and all you have to do is receive it. That's all you have to do. If, you, if you're finding yourself in that spot, like the end of Isaiah chapter eight, where it's darkness and gloom and anguish all around. A couple things. One, Jesus sees that and he knows that and he cares incredibly deeply for you. In fact, he knows it better than you know it yourself. He was a man of sorrows and of hurt. And he sympathizes with us. And his life is given to you. See, the wages of our sin is that anguish. It is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And to us, a child is born. To you, a son is given. And the weight of the world will be on his shoulders, not on yours. In fact, it already is on his shoulders. And I didn't say this the first service, it just kind of came to mind, but there was a guy, George Matheson was his name. He was running a YMCA, I want to say in like Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. You can look him up, find him online. But it was struggling financially, everything was going down the tubes, and he was working like 80 hours a week to try to keep things in line. And um, eventually he just, he did something he never did. He took an afternoon off and he went with his journal and his Bible to the park and he sat down and he just cried and he said, God, I can't do this anymore. And he kind of just, he, he sensed God say to him, what makes you think that it's all on you, George? You need to resign that to me. And so he wrote in his journal, he said, dear God, I officially hereby resign from my position as uh, the, the, the emperor of the entire universe. Sincerely, George. And he writes about it later and he says, and God joyfully accepted my resignation. See, the weight of the world is on Jesus' shoulder. He gives you peace. He's a wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's everlasting father. He's the prince, dare I say, the king of peace. And he says, come to me, all of you, who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Friend, uh, if you find yourself in that spot, whether it's anguish because of something you've done, maybe something totally out of your control that's left you hopeless and in despair, Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you rest for your souls. And the Bible's clear. If you would simply believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he receives you. With open arms, he loves you, he saves you, he makes you his child, he, 
He crawls down in the pit with you and helps you out. Now, for those of you who do know Jesus, you have received that peace, then then your role and my role is to offer it to others. God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus, and we're his ambassadors to spread the truth of that to other people to offer peace to them as if Second uh, Corinthians chapter five, verse 20, as if God were making his appeal through us, offer peace. Paul tells the, the Roman church to, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with other people. If you have someone you need to go to, go to him. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Theirs will be the kingdom of God. Friends, uh, Let me encourage you this week as we head to Christmas, find your beach. And it's not in the things of this world. It's in Jesus. We're in desperate need of peace, the peace that King Jesus brings. Receive him this Christmas. Let me pray.